Surfers mm. to episode 257, Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry. It's time for another jam-packed episode. Barry, let me just tell you, do you know what it means that we're at episode 257? Means we have, we actually, it means we're right, we're starting to inch into that territory of a five-year anniversary is what We, as we speak, after this episode is completed, three episodes away from that magic five-year anniversary. You better call somebody! I stole that line from the road dog. But uh, yeah, yeah, at this point, you know, five fucking years uninterrupted. Hey, people, how about you reach out to somebody, give them that hot tag, and bring them on board the brothership? Oh, I sound like Tommy Wildfire Ridge. Somebody say something about firing up. Fire up. In this particular episode, oh, Barry, we're going back to my uh, top 100 of the 80s. Not only that, Barry, we're going into the top 20, motherfucker. We are going to our number 17 match of the 1980s. It is the head cheese Ted DiBiase taking on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And Barry, can I safely say it's one of the great gimmick matches, one of the great blow-off matches, uh, uh, not only of the decade, but maybe of all time? Yeah, because here's the thing. This is actually a great match, though. It's not even that it's just a great blow-off match. This match on its own is fantastic. The fact that it is a gimmick match, the fact that it is a blow-off match, just adds to it. Yeah, and besides all that, we're going to offer up little Florida man or not segment. We're going to see if Lord Barron's does any better than he did last fucking week when he pretty yeah. much shit the bed. We're yeah. also going to be offering up our choices for the top Seinfeld characters. Yes. We're going to be looking back at the uh, show Seinfeld. You, you know, Barry was originally the Seinfeld Chronicles. Did you know that? Uh, was the first episode called that? Uh, that was the very first episode. I believe the pilot episode was introduced as that. Besides that, we're also going to be offering up our takes on, let's see, the top 10 movie quotes that are cited in real life. Barry, do you have a, a good go-to movie quote? Yeah, you know, Jeff, I'm, we, I'm pretty predictable with that. I, mean, what I can get you a toe, Barry. <laughs> exactly. Over the line, Jeff. You're over exactly. the line. Put it on the Underhills tab. Thank you. Exactly. So why don't we now, Barry, go to our match of the week. Barry, it's time for a match of the week. We have not been to Houston, Texas in a hot tick. And we're going there for one of the all-time, in my view, all-time great stipulation matches as it is the head cheese Ted DiBiase, pre-million dollar man, taking on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. We're talking March 22nd, 1985 at the Sam Houston Coliseum. Now, before I throw it to you, Barry, let me just... Point out a couple things real quick. This was uh, the blow-off match for a program that had been going on for quite a while in Mid-South. DiBiase and Duggan, former tag team partners. Hey, it had a split. Duggan was getting over essentially as this big lunkhead. Uh, First time I think we've ever used the word lunkhead, by the way. It's a good one. Yeah, Yeah. thank you. Uh, So they ended up doing a series of, of... Tuxedos like best. Who was the best dressed man in um, in Mid South? And and DiBiase would come out. And he'd have this tuxedo on, just like he's you know kind of doing a sort of Mid South version of Ric Flair, and all dressed up, looking good. And then Duggan would come out, and his hair would be a mess, but he'd be wearing a tux that didn't quite fit right, and he'd have tennis shoes on. And the amazing thing is, is giving credit where it's due, and we have given credit to Bill Watts before. Bill Watts took a guy that was like a, just a piece of, of 
a lump of clay in Jim Duggan, and he molded him into a guy that was super, super over. This is not the, uh, you know, the the guy carrying the board and the high that was in the WWF. This was Jim Duggan. That was a brawler that had, uh, that could do promos that were uh, intelligent and grab, you know, grab the audience by the, by the scruff of the neck and, you know, brought him along with his story. He was tremendous in mid South and literally probably within a year and a half when he went to the WWF, it was over. So, was. but this match, we are talking, here's the tips, Barry, loser leave town in a cage wearing tuxedos with a coal miner's glove on a pole. And all this shit happens in the space of roughly 14 minutes. Barry Rose, tell the folks what you thought of this match. Well, on my own personal list of top 100 matches of the 80s, this is going to, this would probably rank maybe even a little higher than where you have it. And there's really two reasons for it. One is you just spoke about Duggan. This Duggan is really a cross of like Dusty Rhodes with, with less theatrics. Hulk Hogan in some ways, again, less theatrics. This Duggan, I think, could have done anything. And I don't blame him. Look, you, you get a big payday to go to the Federation this is a business. Go make your money. But he is spectacular in this match. And especially the ending, his movements at the ending when he gets the glove and he lays out DiBiase and he and he's bent over and he stays there. And there's like this rage that you can see his punches are incredible. When I when I said Dusty Rhodes, he does that, that essentially the jab punch. And then just lays it in at the end where Dusty would have done the elbow. He he comes across with a right or a left. But Duggan is a revelation at this stage. And you're right, because we had seen him just before he went to Mid-South. And I think his connection to Mid-South was through Florida. I think in some form he was here. And then he wound up going to Mid-South right after. And uh, he wasn't that impressive when he was here. You know, he, he wasn't, didn't he, did he not come down to Florida and do some first blood matches with dusty? He did, but he was only here for, I'll say a month, right? Yeah. Like, if that, yeah. If that maybe even a little bit less. And I, I want to say they may have even done a tuxedo match at that point, but he did a first blood match with dusty and he was pushed, but he just wasn't, he wasn't the same guy that you saw in mid South. And even if you go back and you look at those early mid South matches of Duggan, there was growth there. Like he was starting to develop in this role because he wasn't overly spectacular or impressive when he first came in, uh, came in as a heel. Once he flipped over to babyface too, which I do think was his true calling. It's like a light just flipped on for this guy. And you watch this match. Duggan does everything right for a powerful babyface. Truthfully, though, Ted DiBiase had enough talent for 2000 wrestlers, Ted, Di especially in this match, whether it's Ted DiBiase selling his bumps and he, he, he doesn't, Ted doesn't phone anything in here. Every movement he makes is believable, realistic. And the fact that when he sells, he's truly selling. This is not a half sell or anything like that. He's laying it out. Everything about DiBiase 
is spectacular. And I would put up his work, especially in this match, which I, I just think this is gold the way this was laid out. I'd put his work up against anybody in 1985, anybody in the U.S. And you know what? In Japan, for that matter, as well. I think this is a great match. Start to finish, this is believable. You believe these two guys hate each other. The, these aren't guys that you you know you think are having a beer in the back. You believe these guys truly do hate each other. And Ted DiBiase, I I'm assuming, and I know we've all heard different stories, and a lot of the stories tend to be the same. That DiBiase left because they wouldn't give him any sort of commitment past what he was currently doing, meaning Ted wanted a world title or Ted wanted to be in the world title picture. Federation came calling, promised him lots of money and new gimmick. He took it again. I can't blame somebody to, who wants to better their life and make a lot of money, right? That's not a terrible thing, but had Ted DiBiase stuck around, had he, had he not been, I guess, barred from politics. He wasn't one of Dusty's guys who was having a heavy say at that time. Uh, Ted DiBiase, just, I think, and and I know that you're a gigantic fan. So I know that I'm in some ways stealing that thunder. I know that, you know, he's one of your absolute favorites. I'm hard pressed to say anybody, regardless of who it was, was better than Ted DiBiase at this stage. Well, uh, the match also, uh, Thank you, Lou, for checking. Uh, ended up not just in my top 100 of the 80s. This match was in my top 20, uh, and it came in at number 17. So uh, my thoughts were out of all the matches that I watched during the 1980s, and I saw a lot of stuff. I, I, I didn't see everything. I mean, there were definitely matches that, uh, you know, and you and I have talked about it, that we that I missed the boat on. But I felt this was uh, the 17th best match of the entire Well, decade. Jeff, not to interrupt, but go – but cut yourself a break with that it, what you saw in the 1980s and as you were making that list which my assumption was was probably 1990 you may not have watched some of these matches in you know 30 years or maybe even longer and look we are going to have a different view we've grown hard to believe that we've grown and i'm not just talking about waist size jeff but uh what we look for is going to be a little different right so do you let me let me put you on the spot do you think this match should possibly be a little higher now having seen it again? Um, it's a real good question. I don't know the answer. I, I think really the only other gimmick match <clears throat> that I think is even close to this is the uh, the Memphis-Texas death match with Lawler and Mantell versus uh, Dundee and, and, and Budrow. Sure. Uh, as far as just epic brawls that, you know, and that, that's not to say that there weren't great brawls in other territories, Florida, Mid-Atlantic, whatever, you know, even up in uh, New York. And there were great brawls, of course, in Japan. But this one having so, so many damn gimmicks, uh, you know, like the loser leave town, the, the, the cage match, which, by the way, did you notice the cage was kind of small? It, the, you know what it looks like? It looks like the WWF cages. But it looks smaller than that. Yeah, and I, don't know, I, I don't know if they added a little bit because Hogan was, you know, at, at the time it built a six foot eight and it would look kind of bad if you're, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> if the guy in it was taller than the cage. So maybe they made it a little bit taller. But, the, you know, the uh, the match itself, though, considering everything was about 14 minutes on the clip, and that includes the guys being introduced. That includes DiBiase, you know, staring at the crowd and and you know interacting with the crowd, and then he gets in the ring when the the uh, the official at ringside threatens to uh, you know 
declare Duggan the winner and DiBiase is going to have to leave town for 30 days. Just great, great stuff. And let's talk about how over Jim Duggan was the babyface. And as you were talking, uh, I was sitting there thinking that Jim Duggan uh, and the way that he was over was reminiscent to me of the way that I think Bill Watts really wanted Steve Williams to eventually get over, yeah. you know, like the, the ex football player, he's got some sort of, uh, athletic background that bill can sell to fans. Yep. And I think that was something that was really important to bill Watts. And I don't think that he was ever really completely able to do that with, with doc as great as doc was in Japan, the doc that was in the, uh, the mid South and UWF, I don't think was ever really that great. Uh, he certainly became that in all Japan, but at this point he was still kind of finding his way. He was very good, very solid, but I don't think he was over as a baby face the way that Jim Duggan was at this point. What do you think bear? Well, and that's so I, I like that. And when you first said it, I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And Bill Watts cut his teeth working for Eddie Graham. He had been around for a few years, had worked in the uh, WWF in the 60s, had been in the AWA, San Francisco. He had been all over the country. We always know him as an Oklahoma guy, but he spent a couple of years working with Eddie Graham in Florida. And uh, he was always extremely complimentary and said this is what made him successful. He tried to pick up something from everybody that he worked with. And and look, let's face it, Watts was one of those guys, in my opinion, that for the most part could make almost anything interesting, which I think to me, that's a sign of a great booker that you can do that with Jim Williams, uh, with Jim Williams, with Steve Williams. He wanted a uh, a true collegiate athlete, right? That's exactly what he was looking for. And Williams had it all, arguably the toughest guy ever in professional wrestling or certainly right up there. But he missed a little bit when it came to charisma. And I think if there was a flaw in the game for, for Dr. Death, it was the charisma factor. Well, Duggan had that. And I really like that comparison when you were making that because uh, Duggan, to me, is a guy, especially at this stage, turning babyface, he knew exactly what to do. He was in some ways a Caucasian junkyard dog in the Federation. Between those two, I, I think, and that, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's a stronghold, I, I think had he been able to keep Duggan and junkyard dog, makes me wonder if the outcome could have been a little bit different, Jeff. You know, uh, I think that Bill Watts, uh, if you want to use a, a boxing analogy, the loss of JYD uh, is sort of like a, a right that put Bill down. You know, he, it didn't knock him out, but it, he definitely went down to a knee, you know, and uh, it took some time to recover. He recovered. Uh, he made Duggan that guy that was sort of the baby face that he built around for a time. And Duggan was over so tremendously. And then about a year after that is when Duggan, uh, I know that he went to uh, New Japan. Here, here's one of these stories that I have no idea why I remember this, but I remember reading this in The Observer. That Duggan was overworking for New Japan and Bruiser Brody was there. And Duggan apparently went to Brody and was speaking to Brody about, hey, I've got this offer from uh, from Vince and the Federation. What do you think about it? And I don't know how much he went into, like, you know, how much he was offered and all that kind of stuff. But he was basically told, look, if they're offering you this money, uh, you know, the, you'd kind of be foolish not not to take it because you're not getting that guarantee. 
maybe from Watts. So Duggan came back and, uh, you know, decided uh, after some hesitation going back and forth, because I think he really did appreciate what Watts had done for his career. Sure. But he uh, ended up going to the Federation. And I think really as much as he wanted to build the babyface side of the company around Steve Williams, I think that really kind of was almost like an end game for, for Bill Watts. Like it was just like, fuck man, I keep building up these guys. I get them over tremendously and Vince fucking steals them from me. Uh, you know, he's in the New York and let's face it. Part of it might've been the fact that Jim Duggan was from New York. He was, you know, from upstate New York, but he was an East coast guy. So in a, in a sense, it was a way of going home and, Certainly, that was something that, you know, I know that uh, that Bill Watts had, had mentioned that his, I think his, what was his dad, the, the police chief or like the, uh, the sheriff? The police chief of Glen Falls, New York. Yeah, that's yes. right. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but anyway, so so he left and I don't know that, that Watts really ever recovered because in part because Steve Williams and also, let's face it, Steve Williams was being portrayed as this incredible tough guy, which he was, but of course because he had the Japanese commitments and he was leaving every, like say three months, he would have to work in some sort of injury angle with Steve Williams. So here it's like, you're presenting this guy as this all time tough guy, but he keeps getting hurt, you know? And what's the old line? Uh, your best ability is availability. You ever heard that one bear? No, it's pretty good. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't come up with myself, but I, uh, <laughs> I like so, it. uh, uh, let's get back to the match. So in the match, Duggan gets color very early in the match, and I loved one aspect of DiBiase in this match is the use of facial expressions by DiBiase. There's a moment where Duggan kind of hits him, and DiBiase goes down, and he gets like he's going to run out of the ring, and you see him as he starts looking, and he's putting his hands up to the cage, and he's like has this expression on his face like, I'm trapped, and I can't get out, and it's just masterful the way that DiBiase did that. And like, you know, the, the fact that he was selling, like he was like this trapped animal almost, you know, and he knew that there was a reckoning coming. Th this is to me, one of the great blow off matches to a feud that you'll ever see. I've mentioned before, I think that, that, you know, I had a dinner along with uh, some other people in South Florida with DiBiase. And one of the things that I asked him as I said, you know, I said, I, I want to address a, a, a particular match of yours. I said, you know, and not every wrestler uh, obviously remembers like, oh, do you remember the match you had from March of 1981 in St. Pete? No, you know, it's like, you know, because they work six nights a week, maybe even more. And so they kind of all blend together. Uh, so I asked DiBiase, I said, do you remember this match in Houston, this blow off match you had with Duggan? And he said, do I remember? Of course I remember it because we did the match around the horn for a couple of weeks. In Mid-South. So they were basically doing the same match in Houston that they did in maybe Jackson, that they did in New Orleans, uh, and all the city around, you know, all the cities in the loop around Mid-South, which I thought was kind of funny. Duggan bleeds like the proverbial stuck pig. I mean, his face, once it gets opened up, it is just, a, he's a mess. And then DiBiase takes out the powder. He powders Duggan with it. I mean, they're literally throwing the whole kitchen sink uh, in this match. Uh, and then uh, I mentioned, you know, the, the use by DiBiase of the facial expressions when the glove finally comes off the pole and Duggan gets the glove away from DiBiase. Uh, by the way, Barry, are you familiar with the coal miners glove? Have you been down in a coal mine and, and used the glove? To <laughs> that's, that's just 
like such a weird reference that, you know, uh, they, they, these coal miners, they have a specific glove that they use. And, and I thought that was pretty interesting that Bill Watts sold that to uh, the wrestling fans. But when he finally gets the glove away from, from DiBiase and they do like the, the camera kind of zooms in on his face and he has this look on his face and the blood streaming down his face. He's got the hair is wet against the side of his head. And what I wrote down in my notes is it's almost like a feral reaction. Like he looks like an animal <laughs> that's, right. that's finally about to get his, the crowd in this match, Barry. And this is something that we've probably mentioned in, you know, uh, over 250 times when we talk about our match of the week is so invested, not only in this match, but this feud, the program, everything that's going on. And this crowd of however many thousands of people there, they are there to see Ted DiBiase, by God, get his ass kicked. And the promotion does not let them down. And it's amazing because the match itself is maybe like 11 minutes, okay? But in that 11 minutes, holy shit, do you get your money's worth? It's absolutely amazing. Another note I mentioned, Barry, you know, when you were younger and, and you know, you started really getting into, uh, you know, championship wrestling from Florida, and you would maybe – get uh you know a, a newsletter from a different part of the country or you go and you'd see the after magazines or the ring magazine or wrestling review and you'd read about different territories and you would see stuff about you know like different promotions in different territories and you'd read the stories about quote unquote Texas wrestling and how crazy Texas wrestling was and all the wild brawls this to me this is Texas wrestling because this is a flat out friggin' brawl. Uh, you know, it's got color in it. It's got a gimmick in it, powder, a uh, coal miners, glove, tuxedos. <laughs> Holy shit, Barry. What a fucking epic match. You know, Barry, it's time for another Florida man or not segment. And real quick, I want to give a special shout out to a uh, brother shipper, David Edelman, David, always coming through with the solid, Florida man or not content. We might even go so far as to call this the David Edelman, Florida man or not segment. Barry, are you okay with that? Yeah, I am. Definitely. We, David, if I'm correct, we met David at the, uh, the fan fest that took place a couple of months back. We had lunch with him at Ford's garage. I think I remember you saying that David Edelman is a real son of a bitch, but you know, maybe it was somebody else I'm thinking about. Oh no, I was thinking the other David, uh, Flaherty actually, David Flaherty, you know, I've never thought of him as David before. Wow. Well, you know, eh, always know. been Dave, but yeah, nice guy. And uh, I believe Jacksonville, isn't that right? Or close. Uh, I'll bow to your better knowledge. I'm not all exactly right. sure about that. But uh, anyway, uh, we're very appreciative of all the stuff that David sends to me. So I can quiz his lordship. Are you ready for the first Florida man or not? Motherfucker. <laughs> because people, people, like people love laugh. when you say motherfucker. I, I'm never ready for these, so bring it on. The first story, Barry. Woman does Irish folk dance during DUI sobriety test. We thought we saw everything until this came out. A woman decided to do an Irish folk dance during her DUI sobriety test. The incident happened on April 27th, uh, 2022, but the footage was just released. Police pulled over Amy Harrington. Little did they know that she knew how to shake her leg. Harrington rear-ended another vehicle near her home, and deputies were called to the scene of the accident. Deputies noticed Harrington had signs of impairment, including Barry. See if this sounds familiar to you. Bloodshot, watery eyes, uh, glassy, dilated pupils. They also found a, whoa, the old white foam cup containing a light yellow liquid that smelled of alcohol. 
very urine. Not, yeah, it was not piss because it smelled like okay. alcohol. Either that, it was very strong alcohol in the piss. Uh, they decided to give her a sobriety test. Uh, she, as one of the deputies, <sighs> tried to give her instructions. She said she's heard saying, "Yeah, well, you sound like my ballet coach." She takes five steps and then starts doing ballet moves. That wasn't the exercise that I was demonstrating. Uh, was the police response? The woman then broke into an Irish dance. Rose. <laughs> Florida woman or not? Jeffrey, I have to recuse myself. No, you son of a. Why do I recuse myself? Does because David this happened. Story? No, because this happened in Madeira Beach, it which is did. the home of Frankie, uh, Frankie Seacrest, and Jana Bell Seacrest. No, no, let's be honest. It's the home of Jana Seacrest. Frankie, no, just that's lives true. There. Just lives there. <laughs> that's true. And it's a place I visited multiple times. Here, here's what I. Oh, absolutely. Look, come on. It, this is what I get. Madeira Beach is essentially a, a very affluent community. So this is not a woman that was uh, down at the local watering hole chugging down beers and uh, driving her 1981 Pinto to her shack in Madeira. I, I think the cheapest homes go for three quarters of a million dollars. So unless she's living in an apartment complex that might be on the the fringes of the city, which there are a couple. Uh, this I think Frankie and Jana have a, a studio apartment is what you told me. Wasn't it Bear? Oh yeah. It's a studio. It's not a palatial estate. So anyways, this did t- take place in Madeira beach. I never saw a photo of her though. What did she look like? Uh, I will bow to your better. I do not know. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. But, but she no. sure as hell can dance. That's all I'm going to yeah. say. <laughs> the jig. The next River story dance. coming up at Barry. Man on honeymoon among 176 arrested in a prostitution sting. I hate when that happens, Barry. Police announced that its newly formed human trafficking squad cut a couple's honeymoon short after the husband was arrested in a prostitution bust. That's a, that's going to be a bad time when the, uh, the wife comes to bail him out. That's all I'm going to say. Police said, it did arrest 176 men as part of a month-long investigation into prostitution and human trafficking. Investigators said most of the men were arrested for trying to solicit prostitution. What is this thing they call prostitution, Barry? Is this a new thing? No, I believe this is the oldest profession. Oh, I to think man. you're right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, police singled out Paul Tervosky, not Stephen Javorsky. It's Paul Tervosky. In a news release saying he left his oh god Barry, this is he left his new wife at a hotel while on their honeymoon to meet an undercover officer to pay for sex. Wow. We probably have questions about how long this marriage lasted, but I think the only question here is with it ending so quickly as a wedding guest, was it too late to get the gifts back that they had given uh to have them returned? That's the uh, wiseacre in the police department. Sure. Uh, police said that not only were some of the suspects accused of trying to solicit prostitutes, they're also trying to core. Uh, this is negative. They're trying to coerce the young and underage children into having sex with them, which is a very easy. Oh. Let's let's stick strictly to the a-hole that's on his honeymoon. Yeah. Decides to uh, score yeah. a little prostitute. Barry Rose, Florida man or not. This begs so many questions, too. And, and look, we've we've all got at some point in a relationship, uh, you know, the thought may be sexually of a different partner, whether we admit to it or not. Uh, what? Right. Exactly. You're not going to admit to it, but if I it know when you were with the sainted former Mrs. Rose that yes. you never thought about anybody else. Uh, well, okay. But moving okay. on from that quickly, 
how how do you get married, go on a honeymoon, and decide to get a prostitute on your honeymoon? It's kind of like that that old movie, The Heartbreak Kid, with Charles Grodin and well, Sybil I was Shepherd. thinking of actually the Ben Stiller version, which is uh, essentially the the plot line that he basically on the honeymoon hooks up with a, a new woman while his wife's uh, recovering from a summer. Did you ever see the Ben Stiller version? She's recovering yeah, from a summer. It's the same movie. It just yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I got to say though. The woman he was either married to or cheating with, I think the one he was married to, wasn't she stunningly gorgeous, though? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, the actress, maybe Sweet Lou can do some uh, quick research. Um, it's There's the Mich- girl. I, Michelle I think- Monaghan. That's her name because she's been it, in a, uh, she plays Tom Cruise's wife in the Mission Impossible. Right, movies. right. So who was the other girl? The blonde. The blonde who was super annoying that would sing uh, very loud on the road trip. She she would like uh, sing at an accelerated uh, decibel, and it really started to annoy Ben Stiller. And that's like basically when he decided to leave her. I got to so, hey, get back to the story. Super right? hot though. Do you remember? Yeah, her? yeah no, no, yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. So where did this story take place? Florida. This story. Or no? no, this didn't take place in Florida. This story. And prostitution sting it this we're looking at prostitution unless he's doing street prostitutes in in florida which that's not a good this took place in las vegas Ray, let me ask you uh are there no uh, based on what you're saying here are you saying there's no prostitution in florida no no what i'm saying is well there's no high level prostitutes that's i was giving this guy the benefit of the tout the doubt that he or wasn't tout, yes or tout that he wasn't cruising like the the worst areas looking for street prostitutes that he was at least going to a more high end uh, atmosphere but you know again he is going to a hooker on his uh, honeymoon so i'm guessing standards are out the window uh, by the way, Lou chiming in, it was Malin Ackerman. That That's was it. Story. Yes, yes. Good-looking woman. Man. Mary Rose, this story taking place. Hillsborough County. Is that not Tampa? That's, that is the, that is Fort Hesterly Armory. He was going for street I don't know if he was picking her up outside the old Fort, uh, Fort Homer Hesterly Armory, you know. Got wow. Do we get, down. do we have a name for this young man? Uh, wait a minute. Let me see. Yeah, I gave you. It was uh, not Javorski. It was uh, the one that sounded like Javorski. Something uh, else like that. Something- Paul Turvoski. We need to get him on the phone, too. Yeah, I think so, we need to do an interview with him. So so just so we're clear, he's in Hillsborough County, which means he's probably vacationing. If he's honeymooning, he's probably somewhere close to a beach, which is not Hillsborough County, which meant he got in the car and started driving into the city to pick up a hooker. Uh, yeah, th- this is this is endless on this one. <laughs> we got to we got to talk to this guy. Yes, you, you think he'd come on and do an interview with us here on Breaking oh, Cable about and Barry? <laughs> come on, we'll, we'll let him. If plug not, something. we can get the newly uh, newly married Mrs. Trevosky. <laughs> better better interview. Yeah, yes. better interview. Yes. Next wow. headline: Barry man bites chokes relative over toaster oven argument. Police say. Pretty Barry. Police arrested a man Thursday who they said allegedly tried to choke one of his relatives during a fight over a toaster oven. The argument eventually uh, escalated into a full-blown fight with uh, the man knocking the victim victim over, punching him, biting him on the neck, and then wrapping his arm around the family member's throat to choke him. A female relative saw the fight and tried to get the man to stop by yelling at him, and that always works, and trying to pull him off. Fearing for the victim's life, the woman took a knife and stabbed the man in the back to get him to stop. 
this is a, a pretty good brawl here, Barry. This is a bunkhouse rules. Deputy said the victim <laughs> was stabbed in the sh- was also stabbed in the shoulder with the same knife, but was expected to recover. When speaking to the police afterward, the female family member said she was afraid that the man was going to kill the family member if she didn't intervene. Oh, here's the part, Barry. You won't be surprised that she also mentioned to police that the defendant is a known drug user and Uh-oh. had been awake for several days before the incident. I hate when that happens. Apparently. So what's he using if he's been awake for several days? Meth? I'm, I'm, I, cocaine? Uh, crack? Yeah. A little, little crystal action there, uh, but I bow to your better knowledge. Barry Rose, Florida man or not? So we got Madera Beach, which is St. Pete. We had Tampa on the next one. Are you sticking with this theme and maybe moving in a direction? I'm going <laughs> to say this one is Lakeland. Based off of that, this is Lakeland. Tampa, Flagler County, Barry. Apparently, wow. shit was going on in Tampa St. Pete recently. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. As there's, soon there's as I all, leave. Yeah, so uh, I, it was weird. I got messed up there when I was reading it because they give the man's name, and it's basically, is they say Buckley. They don't give his first name, so I don't know why the oh. fuck they did that. Uh, let's see, Barry. The next uh, story we have, I don't know if it's from Tampa St. Pete or not, uh, the headline, arrest me because I hit her. Woman who punched manager who refused to sell her alcohol has been arrested. <clears throat> Woman was arrested after she allegedly hit a Circle K convenience store assistant manager. How, how depressing does your life have to be to be a Circle K assistant manager? <laughs> oh, it's pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's one thing if you're working at the Circle K, you're putting in a couple hours a week. Or if you're the manager, because maybe you're getting some uh, some profit sharing, little stock options. But if you're the fucking assistant manager, that's got to be like <laughs> the lowest. You're on that the the levels of hell, you know. Anyway, on August 23rd, uh, the uh, manager visited the Silver. Oh, almost gave it away there uh, to uh-huh. get something when she witnessed a woman in the store trying to buy alcohol without an ID card. Barry, do you still get carded, by the way? I wish. Okay, no, I did thank not. You. Yeah. Store clerk told her she could not sell the alcohol to her without ID. Police said the woman then walked outside to a vehicle and another woman got out of the vehicle and walked inside the store and attempted to buy the same alcohol. Manager denied the sale due to it being a third-party sale. This is awful complicated, Barry. Saying the store clerk could potentially go to jail for it, which, by the way, technically that's true, uh, as my wife worked at the uh, old uh, uh, Florida Panthers arena there, so she knows about how they are about uh, selling the alcohol. Uh, The manager went back to her vehicle and tried to leave. Uh, Police say that the, uh, the defendant came out of the store and began calling her names. Oh, my God, Barry. Uh, She then reportedly opened the woman's passenger door and punched the manager before leaving the area in a tan SUV. Not the same as a brown LTD. Those were the cars that followed Kevin Sullivan around 1986 or 87 uh, in CWF, Barry. Anyway, so uh, the woman is up on uh, charges of felony batter, a burglary with assault and was taken to jail. Uh, So, Barry, it becomes a felony burglary. Because she opened the woman's car door and punched her because now you're gaining access to the woman's vehicle. Oh. Yeah, I remember that from my days at the old courthouse. Yeah. Barry Rose, Florida woman or not. So note to self, never go into somebody's car. Wait till they step out of the car. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Which is good because I plan on getting in a fight later uh, well, as you I know. go driving. So I want to make sure. This one. So we've got St. Pete, Tampa, Tampa. 
are you staying with this? No, you're not. You're you're going somewhere. I don't. But David Edelman, your he's your go-to dealer on Florida Men Are Not. Stories. I had the story from Ghana last episode, Barry. That is true. You did go Ghana. Ghana. That's uh, <laughs> not confused with Ghana Ria, which is a Ghana Ria or Guyana, Guyana, whatever. Uh, fuck. You're out of, uh, but it's David Edelman. He's giving you Florida stories. Do the math. Hold on. I've got five fingers, but I got, I got the big toe. This one is not Florida, Jeff. Silver Spring. Go! Almost gave it away, but not quite. Marion County. Barely. Yeah. All right. So, where apparently things, uh, when you're working at the Circle K, are not going well. Next story, Barry. Oh, you love a good story involving meth. Uh, Barry. Woman brings drugs to police work crew program. Woman was participating in an inmate work crew program when she was arrested by police after they say she had that she had hid methamphetamines among her belongings. Police said that in some instances, instead of incarceration, people will get put on a weekend work crew. The woman is given the opportunity by the police you know you don't have to have the bars locked behind you we're going to put you on the old work crew you'll do your time on a work crew doing some cleanup doing a little mowing of the lawns along the highway but no this woman barry she brings the crystal with her anyway so uh the woman that uh, 42 year old janelle paisley was a part of the work crew when her supervisor believed drugs specifically meth was brought into the program uh, police contacted uh, canine units to come sniff out any potential drugs on the site. Police say that uh, they scouted the participants. They were alerted uh, by uh, the uh, dog Samba about oh, the Samba. backpack belonging to Paisley. Police say they searched her bag. Meth was found hidden within the old cigarette butt, Barry. She was arrested, charged with possession. Uh, placed on a $10,000 bond. And guess what? She doesn't get to be part of the damn work crew anymore, Barry. Florida woman or not. This one is, I'm going to say this one is Florida. And, Okeechobee uh, County, yeah! Barry. You got yeah. one of them fucking right. Thank so, God. Barry, David Edelman coming through. I'm going to have to have David uh, kind of spread out his uh, story. Hey, give me one from Ghana one week, one from uh, Florida, and then one from, uh, you know, Vegas or something like that. We don't want to do the all Florida episode uh, of Florida Man or Not, but apparently we just did. Yep. Barry, time for another discussion of television, courtesy of our friends at MovieWeb.com. Certainly, I know one of your favorite uh, websites. Oh, yeah. But the folks at MovieWeb, Barry, not talking movies this week. They're talking a subject near and dear to both of our hearts. They are talking, Barry, the best characters on Seinfeld ranked. Oh, I so love it. I'm sure that's something that you and I will have a good discussion of. First of all, before we start this list, Barry, uh, who is your least favorite Seinfeld character? Ooh, so are we, is this big four or is this just anybody on the no, no, show? No, no, just anybody, let, let's just say anybody that was in more than one episode. How about that? Ooh, uh, I, you know, that, uh, it, Kathy Griffin, and I think she was in more than one, but I don't know if she counts because she was only in two max. And I just, something about Kathy, I think it's mostly her voice, Kathy Griffin. With that, Probably Susan, George's fiance that he killed. 
so let me just that brings the question sure. was the character of susan sabotaged because reportedly they really didn't no one really liked the actress apparently and and uh jason um alexander has come out and, and flat said that was a problem uh while they were filming the show apparently they've i don't know if they've uh, made amends and and such like that with the actress but at the time part of the reason the character was killed off was because the actress was very not very well liked by the uh, quote unquote big four. So, do you think that could have affected the way that the character was portrayed? No, I don't think so. I because initially, and initially, I I, I don't know. Let me say me, possibly, maybe there. I guess there's always a chance in some way. But initially, I I think I liked the character. I liked where it was going. She was working uh, as an assistant at NBC when they were pitching their show, which was about nothing. And I liked the character. I what I didn't like was the relationship that she and George had that was ongoing until he killed her. And I just I found her character unlikable, not exciting. But let me ask you a personal question. You're an actor. You've been able to land a fairly prominent role lasting several years on arguably the biggest television show in its day. And you're you're a dick like you're not there basically licking the ass of everybody that's given you a job that you'll you'll never have to work again, that you could live off residuals or fan conventions. And instead, you're a dick and you get written off. I mean, you got to be a real asshole, though, right? No, and that's fair. You know, uh, and, you know, there are there are characters on the show that I found annoying but the character was supposed to be annoying. So I don't really think, you know, Kenny sure. Banya, he, he was supposed to be kind of an a-hole, uh, clingy and stuff like right. that. So I don't really think you can hold that against it. That's not, you know, necessarily the, the fault of, uh, you know, the actor or anything like that. That's the way the character, you know, Wayne Knight, uh, you know, hello, Newman. Newman was supposed to be an asshole. So you really can't hold that against him. So let's start off. Barry Rose, according to the good folks, again, at movieweb.com, number seven, for some reason, it's a one through seven list. I don't know why they decided not to go all the way to 10. It's not like they didn't have any characters. Number seven, Barry, George Steinbrenner. And George Steinbrenner, if I'm correct, was played mostly by Larry David. Yes. I, yeah. Definitely voiced by Larry David. Right. I think that might be it. It might not be the physical, but he was voiced. And Larry David had a few cameos. I had no problem with uh, George Steinbrenner on the show whatsoever, though it wasn't and, George Steinbrenner. And that was a, a very uh, new – I mean, of course, people uh, in pop culture knew who George Steinbrenner was because he was a very high-profile owner of the Yankees. Right. But uh, it came off very New York-centric, you know. Like sort of some of the characters' idiosyncrasies, you know, like uh, I got to have a, uh, you know, a, a piece of, uh, Italian, you know, some Italian food from this particular restaurant. And, you know, it was very uh, New York centric, uh, but it was a fun character and it was a fun character because of the way Larry David voiced it. I love those calzones. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, number six. Now, controversial, Barry, number six character on our list is Jerry Seinfeld playing Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> and one of the things they list is that essentially he's the least funny character because he's playing the straight man, which, by the way, was a stroke of genius on his behalf. Yeah. And so I agree. If you look at the main four, Jerry, even though the show is sent, it's got his name, but the show is completely centered around him. He is the least interesting of all four characters. He's got his little quirks. Oh, everything's got to be just so. But at the same time, 
Kramer. Kramer's all over the board. George is just, you know, a great character. And I think George was modeled after Larry David for the most part. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. And then Elaine, uh, who also is. But Jerry is the straight man, which is going to make him the least interesting of, of the main four characters. You know, I don't. He certainly didn't offend me in any way, but uh, no. Uh, well, let's put it this way: a lot of the best stuff involving Jerry Seinfeld, uh, the character on the show, was his facial expressions and his reactions to something that someone said or did, and he'd kind of give him like you know that okay you know look as he sort of looks away and you know uh, sort of his reaction to what other characters are doing. That's where he uh, really came into his own as you know the character speaking. Number five, Barry. Now, here, I'm going to say this character might have deserved a higher spot in here because he literally just became like a force of nature. Uh, he didn't start with the show in the first like a couple of seasons, but when he was introduced, the great Jerry Stiller is Frank Costanza. What a fantastic character. Yeah, and I, I loved all the parents uh, that were on yes. the show, even both of Jerry's dads, though that was the second dad that we knew best, and I loved him. But Frank Costanza was gold. Look, Jerry Stiller was, you know, they were fortunate to get Jerry Stiller, and I know he went on to do other shows, and uh, I think it was King of Queens, where he was playing, I think, a very similar character. Uh, and I think he just died within the last six months to a year, but he was fantastic. And I, you're right. With that role, the way that he embraced that role, every time he was on screen, he was essentially stealing the scene. Okay, so let me ask you. I'm just going to throw this at you unannounced. Better uh, storyline involving Frank Costanza, Serenity Now, Insanity Later, or the episode where he does the callback to the time that he was serving in Korea and got all the soldiers sick because he messed up his recipe, and that's why he refuses to cook anymore. I think I overseasoned the meat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's your answer, I, right? I got there. A, I got a deal on some yeah. meat. <laughs> I got a deal on some meat. Look, Kramer's cooking Kreplock at Newman's. He's got his borscht cooking over here, and he just needs some help. And this was the same episode where Frank looks at Elaine and goes, "Between you and me." I think I got a foot odor problem. <laughs> he was just fucking gold yeah, in this had, role. He had the uh, old girlfriend from Korea who yeah, the old girlfriend. Oh my oh. god! Yeah, that was, and so. he come over the house, you know, take off his shoes. My father very upset. <laughs> yeah, was that, was that your Korean accent there, Barry? That was my horrific Korean accent. Okay, cancel culture is coming after this. Oh, show. they're absolutely please. Yeah. So no, but I think Frank Costanza absolutely was such a great character. Because the next, uh, and she's one of the big four, you know, Elaine Bennis, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, was a great character. I don't know that she was better than Frank Costanza, though. What do you think? Uh, well, she well, I don't Her think Her dance was. was like a full body heave, you know. Oh, the dance was fantastic. It was a, with the thumbs up and the, yeah. And what did they call her? They had a name for it. They had a name when she was dancing. And then they had a name with, they used to call her Nip. If you remember that episode, <laughs> that's, that's too. Right. That was hey, Nip. <laughs> well, you know, and the character was based on a girl uh, that Jerry Seinfeld had dated uh, during like the mid 80s, uh, who actually I think might have done some writing for the show. But uh, he, uh, oh man, I can't remember. Maybe, maybe as we're talking about this, Luke can look that up. Uh, but uh, it was absolutely based on a real person. So, uh, Julia Lee Dreyfus, is, is this a good spot for her? Should she still be ahead of Frank Costanza? What do you think? 
Carol Lifer, yes, that's exactly who it was. Who was dating, uh, I think, Jerry or Larry David, wasn't she at the time? Yes. Yeah. Is she, I mean, she's been around. Carol Leifer has been around. She was dating she's David been around, Letterman. Uh, you mean writing is what you mean. Well, I, but maybe with uh, – she was dating David Letterman like 40 years ago. Yeah. And then she was involved with Letterman and may even had a, have had a hand in that show as well. Carol Leifer is just – she's a comedian that's literally 40 to 50 years at this point. I, you know, I – Frank Costanza is going to stand out more than Elaine. <laughs> Lou, Lou pointing out she used to be married to Rich Schneider. Now she's a lesbian. So, you know. Okay. Who's Rich Schneider? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, apparently. Scheidner. Uh, Rich uh, Scheidner. Yeah. The, uh, the son of the Schneider family, I guess. I don't okay. know. But, yeah. Uh, hey, Lou, Lou, who is Rich Scheidner? Uh, a fellow comedian. Oh, Okay. Obviously not quite as successful. I'm just going to put it out. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) But Lou's phrasing is good. We're married to Rich Schneidner, now a lesbian. Excellent, Lou. You know, I got got to hit the bullet points. It was excellent. It's much like the one episode where uh, I think it was, uh, was it George said, you know, like, uh, uh, I, I send them, uh, you know, I, uh, they come to me and they leave and, uh, you know, I, I turn them away and they become lesbians and, uh, Yes. Uh, I, I, I don't, I, Elaine was, it's so hard because this is one of those Elaine to me seems absolutely perfect in this role. She really was tremendous. Frank Costanza was the guy though. Again, he stole every scene, but you know, with 25 minutes of Frank Costanza every Thursday night, that's a valid point. Yes. That might've been a little too much. What we got may have just been the perfect amount. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. So since you watch this show or have told me you watch it, better character for Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Elaine Bennis, or her character in Veep? I've never seen Veep. Oh, I thought you told me you watched that. Okay, no. I, just, I know she's yeah. won tons of awards for that and all that. So number three, hello, Newman. Wayne Knight as the next store mailman. Yeah, so I, you know, Newman also, I like, I like Newman in small amounts. I don't like when there's too much Newman. And there was a changeover Newman from the earliest episodes to the later episodes. But I like Newman. I I wouldn't put him ahead of Frank Costanza or Elaine, but I like him. So do you recall the very first uh, during the run of the show? I'm not going to say reference, but uh, the very first appearance by Newman was in one of the first, mm, I want to say five episodes, but it was before you actually saw Wayne Knight. Is this when they're talk when Kramer's at in court? No, this is when uh, Kramer leans out the window and says, "Hey Newman," and you hear Wayne Knight's voice, and he's threatening to kill himself. And they're yes, like, "But you it. live on the first floor, you know." That, so uh, yeah, and then I think he had to go to court, and he's talking about uh, about how he's saying, "Well, then kill yourself." I mean, different times. It's probably not PC to currently encourage someone to kill themselves. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess you might be <laughs> correct on that. Uh, that might be something. Speaking of cancel culture, uh, you yeah, know, uh, encouraging a suicide might somebody might take a dim view of that. So yes. uh, next, of course, number two. Well, Barry, let me just ask you. So obviously, we know who the uh, leading two candidates are. So better character, George Costanza or Cosmo Kramer? Who's got the number two spot here, Bear? My opinion or who do I think? Who do you think? And then tell us your opinion. I think Kramer is going to be the number one character and George will be number two. I see it differently. Sometimes Kramer was too much. And again, Kramer was a guy that started off and once there was such a reaction to his almost at times slapstick comedy 
they made Kramer. Kramer became the Fonz. He became uh, the Fonz, uh, Jimmy J.J. Walker. He became kind of the breakout star of the show in a sense. And uh, they pushed him. And I, I think at that point, Kramer was going over the top with stuff. It was a little too much. But you go back to the earlier episodes, which I actually prefer Seinfeld the first four seasons over the last four. I think they have chosen Kramer, though I would have chosen George. I think George is a character. And Jason Alexander's portrayal, it's, it's, I think it's just unbelievable. Well, first of all, really, uh, at this point, the character of George is so iconic, and it is number two here. Is there really anything that Jason Alexander can do that's going to make people forget that that he was George Costanza? I mean, we talked about Julie Louis-Dreyfus transitioned to the uh, her, her role in the HBO show Veep. Uh, really, could George, uh, you know, can Jason Alexander get away from being, uh, I mean, in the same way, honestly, that Michael Richards, can he really at this point get away from being Cosmo Kramer? Well, Michael Richards has a uh, a bigger set of luggage that he carries with him, which no, is I get that. about I'm racist, but, 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 right? If you, <laughs> no, no. But if you take away that uh, that night where he uh, perhaps killed his career at a nightclub, which but he did, you take, yes. take that away, could he have done something, you know, like where no. he created no a way. character the way Julie Louis-Dreyfus did? No, no way. And if you go back and it's funny, like, do you, do you ever see UHF that, uh, the weird yes. owl yeah. and he played, he, there's a character and he plays a character in there. And even though it, I think he's brain damaged as well, but there's so much Kramer in that character that I don't think, I think he would have been, again, he, he's killed his career. He would have been typecast as Kramer without a doubt. There is yeah. no way that he could have escaped it. Julie Louis-Dreyfus, though, and maybe she's lucky, Jason Alexander, I think, has had two TV shows that have both failed because people only see him as Kramer, as uh, as George. George, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, I, I think that's a hard one. I, I don't think Kramer ever could have done that. So the article here uh, says Larry David's alter ego uh, and a sign of things to come is a fascinating psychological study into the mind of a bumbling neurotic living life in the most pathetic way possible. And, and that's, I think, a pretty fair observation, you know, because much, you know, as we said, the character of George, of course, is based completely on Larry David and that that someone is living their life, you know, literally uh, having all these little, you know, personal idiosyncrasies, uh, you know, neurotic behaviors that wasn't a character. It was, it was Larry David in real life. And we've seen that in the Larry David show too. Yeah, we too. And that's a, so I have this question, uh, a lot of conversations and it really depends who you talk to, but better show in your opinion. So not, not historical ramifications and all that better show that you would rather sit down and watch a few episodes, Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm. Well, see, that's it's unfair because I know there are people that think Curb uh, is like the greatest show of all time. I know, uh, you know, Howard Baum is a huge fan of that show, and he's talked about that many times. And I know other other people that we're friends with that feel that way, too. I watched one season of Curb and haven't had a chance to get back and finish up the series yet. So it's really, you know, so I would have to say Seinfeld just on the the body of work that I have seen personally. Now, I will say you sort of referenced that Seinfeld kind of started a downhill slide in the last season, a couple seasons. Not coincidentally, when Larry David left uh, as one of the writers. Absolutely. um, I think he stayed on as the executive producer in that role. but. You know, he did not have the interaction 
on a uh, weekly basis that was what made the show so great and it's noticeable you know and so all this all the times that you know you talk about the great episodes of Seinfeld the Chinese restaurant the parking garage the uh all my favorites you know and the one uh, what is it uh, is anyone here a marine biologist that uh, you know that's my all-time favorite that's all stuff that was when Larry David was still part and parcel of the show and when he left that's when you started seeing stuff like yeah, remember the Kenny Rogers restaurant and all this stuff and, and it, to me it just started really kind of losing a little bit and it seemed like they were kind of retelling the same episodes but like kind of putting a little twist on it. You're like, this is real similar to something they did in episode in season two, you know, or something like that. So George Costanza is number two. So obviously uh, discussing him, number one, Cosmo Kramer. So here's what something interesting about Michael Richards. And again, I'm I'm, not that I'm trying to minimize it, but uh, having nothing to do with his uh, infamous, uh, you know, horrific rant in the nightclub. I have seen clips before where, you know, like outtakes from the show where they show Michael Richards and Michael Richards would get visibly pissed off if someone broke character and started laughing at a line. He was so tightly wound. Uh, is what happened to him really a huge shock? I mean, not not necessarily the racist part, but the fact that he kind of, you know, imploded on stage. I can't say that I'm completely surprised by that, Barry. <laughs> and you bring up that's a really good point as well. And, uh, he was super tightly wound and he was similar in some ways to bull from night court. And we had this impression of bull and, uh, and Dwight Schrute from the office. Oh, is he like that as well? No, no, no. I, I'm talking about the characters. Oh, okay. Yeah. You yeah. Know. But I, but even, you know, like you look at uh, bull and bull was in some ways, he was the heart and soul of night court. And he was this big kind of similar to Kramer in some ways, a little out there, Big and goony, but fun, hard of gold. And in real life, apparently, Richard Mall, who played Bull, was the complete opposite. He was the unofficially, I guess, the least favorite cast member that nobody loved this guy. He was difficult to work with, but he was, you know, he became the star of the show in many ways. So I think Kramer was, it, it's very, very similar. That meltdown he had, too. How do you. You can never recover from a melt because that was just a, a brutal, brutal meltdown. But what what goes through your head when you're having a meltdown like that for you to do that? And does that go along with what you just said? Is he so tightly wound or was he so tightly wound that he couldn't even stop himself? Well, and then, of course, there was the attempt to. Uh, oh, that was brutal. You know, was it on Letterman? No, it was, uh, I think it was, it was either Leno or Letterman, but I think it might've been Leno and it was like literally within 24 hours yeah, with and Jerry, right? And, yeah. And Jerry Seinfeld was there. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld was trying to help his friend basically repair the damage and it almost, you know, it, it made checking it, in, it was Letterman. Yes. Yeah. It made it worse. And, uh, you know, but, uh, so, and you know, of course, uh, you mentioned it, I, Recall first seeing Michael Richards on, on the UHF. I want to say, what was his character's name, like Lenny or something like that? But he was like kind of this goofus on this little small cable station or UHF station who ran, a, who did a kid show. Uh, and I want to say he wasn't he like the janitor at the station. And they yeah, made him he the host. was the best. He yeah. was the fucking janitor and they made him the host of a kid show. Yeah. And he just like became this incredible character. You know, and Michael, Michael Richards uh, also was on the TV show Fridays. And there's a clip that's out there that's absolutely incredible where Andy Kaufman 
is there and he's in character uh, of Andy Kaufman being, you know, sort of the uh, envelope pusher. And Michael Richards is, of course, almost like this. Uh, what do they call uh, the? You know, he he's, uh, he's sort of like Brando and uh, what do they call it? The Lee Strasberg uh, was it Lee Strasberg? The 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 acting yes, coach. Yes. Yeah. And like he's so into the character that when he sees somebody who's not doing something he shouldn't, he like completely loses his temperature or temperature, his temper, and he kind of like throws everything off the table on the set and he gets pissed off at Andy Kaufman, who's in who's doing like this character, you know, that and I guess Michael Richards didn't know that he was doing this character. It's a great it's out there on YouTube. It's very funny if you ever see it. So uh so anyway, let me ask you then, Barry. Obviously, you know, it's not like they could do uh, top 50 Seinfeld characters. Well, they could, but they didn't do it for this article. So tell me a character they didn't mention that you're like, wow, this this character definitely should have been part of this list. Uh, Frank Costanza's wife, George's mother, was a Estelle. Estelle was as much of a character as her husband was. She was I thought she was fantastic. I would have loved to have seen her on there. I, I love Jerry's parents, his mom. I think she just passed away also. They're all gone now. Yeah. And I, I think within a very short period of time, we lost uh, both the Costanzas and then Jerry's mom. The father had been gone for years. She was understated, but I love the dad. But there's not even a mention of Uncle Leo. Anywhere. Ah, that's the guy that I was looking at. Yeah, I said, how is uh, Uncle Leo not on here? You know? Hello. Oh, hello, Jerry. <laughs> He's stealing from Brentano's. <laughs> yes, <laughs> think, about, think about that. That's a reference that people of a certain age will not get the Brentano's reference. You know, or there even was a at time when Brent, what's that? Yeah. Even out of New York. Who knew no, I'd like, been out of New York? There was a time when Brentano's, Borders, and Barnes & Noble were like the three major booksellers, you know, uh, and, and chains that were all over the country. And uh, yeah, and like. Brentano's and Borders at some point disappeared. Barnes and Noble is eventually, I'm sure, probably going to get eaten alive by a by Amazon and people buying from Amazon. But that so uh, you know, like such a, a, a like a trivial reference, the fact that Leo is not only stealing but he's stealing from Brentano's, and then of course that episode where George is trying to return the book that he had in the bathroom, and oh, this book has been flagged. You took this in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, take this thing away from. So, uh, so yeah, I think Uncle Leo would be the obvious answer. Who, who else? Uh, tell me some other characters real quick as we wrap this segment up. Somebody else that should have been considered. Who do you think? Uh, there were, I mean, Jerry dated a lot of different women. I, uh, Babu Babu. I always, which one? Babu. Babu I didn't like Babu. I didn't okay. like Babu Babu. Just found it too. Very, very bad that you didn't like Babu Bhatt. Yeah, I didn't really like Babu Bhatt. Uh, Jerry had a lot of girlfriends. Elaine's boyfriends. Uh, she putty. dated a commun, and Putty, a communist. Yes. Ned Eisenberg. Uh, she also dated. Uh, now, was that was that the guy that they weren't sure if he was black or not? No. <laughs> Remember that? Of course I do. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, that guy, they, they were, they were in an interracial relationship because she's like half Asian or something. Right. Isn't that what <laughs> yes. he said? He, he, how about Mr. Pitt? The great Mr. No, Pitt. Yeah, now that's a guy that absolutely uncle Leo and Mr. Pitt might be the two. Yes. Really should be. Considered. And you know, because both characters were also in multiple episodes, it wasn't like a one or uh, you know, uh, right. two appearances they were they were in multiple episodes and oh my god the 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 episode with mr pitt where he gets the ink stain on his uh, upper lip and he goes there and he's he's doing some board of directors meeting and he's 
he's given the the sign and he comes off like Hitler because he's wearing he's wearing the riding boots and he looks like a friggin' Nazi. You know, the fact that a Jewish comedian, two Jewish comedians can write a skit about a guy doing a Hitler impression. That's pretty heady stuff, Bear. Yeah, that it is, too. And look, that I, that's part of the beauty of Larry David, too, is that a lot yeah, of his right, Lou pointing out he's planning to annex Poland Springs water, yeah, which I what did the name come? Moland Springs. Yeah, is yeah. that what they settled on? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's uh, it just, you know, there there were so many great and there were so many little characters. What do you, do you remember? Mickey. Mickey, do you remember? You said little character. Oh, you look at you. But <laughs> <Yeah. boom, boom. laughs> look at you. Oh, making midget jokes. Remember Ruthie Cohen, who was the cashier at oh, the diner? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was in like so many episodes. She was. I think she got like one line. Yeah. If that's it. And then, uh, oh man, uh, uh, Jamie Gertz's character, Can You Spare a Square? You know, that. Can You Spare a Square? And, uh, and then there was, uh, yeah, that's right. She was trying to get. That was also Spongeworthy episode. Yes, if I'm correct. yes. And yeah. well, she was also the uh, the operator on the uh, the adult line that Cosmo uh, or that Kramer kept calling. That's right. She, that's she's right. very breathy. She talks very breathy. breathy. So, yeah. so anyway, uh, fun discussion, Bear. So, folks, tell us who is your favorite and least favorite character on the classic television sitcom Seinfeld. Barry, coming to you from the pages of ScreenRant.com, top 10 movie quotes most used in daily life, according to Reddit. Now, Barry, you know, you and I, being both big movie fans, we occasionally will throw a movie quote out at each other, correct? Oh, I mean, we do it. I think in every conversation we have, we throw a movie yes. quote at each other. So I'm just going to say that there is, I'm not going to do any spoilers because I want to get you the list. There's one movie that, Barry Rose is thinking, better fucking be on this list. Am I correct? <laughs> well, there's a couple, but yeah, there's one that okay. better be on there. And once again, let me state, this is not our top 10. This is according to Reddit, okay? So we'll start off with number 10. Barry, were you a fan of the movie Mean Girls? I, I've never seen it. It was a cute movie. Uh, and the quote is, she doesn't even go here. Uh, it was a, a movie about uh, what's the uh, Lindsay Lohan. Uh, she played the uh, the girl that uh, was new in the school and sort of the clique uh, that was uh, sort of uh, running the student population, if you will, almost like a prison joint. Uh, and Lindsay Lohan's trying to kind of you know ingratiate herself with the Mean Girls, but she doesn't even go here. Is uh, one of the it's one of those things that inspired a million memes. It's a cute movie, I have to say. So uh, Barry from the movie Seven, what's in the box? What a brutal yeah. scene. Yeah, it is a brutal scene. But you know, I, I don't know uh I don't know that I've ever quoted the movie Seven. I again I think I've only seen it a couple of times. Didn't we just discuss this like a month or so ago? Mm, remind me. I don't that's I just remember seven and me saying seven was the seven deadly sins. Of course. There are seven that, deadly sins. Uh, yeah. Morgan Freeman there. So uh, just uh, David Fincher, just a tremendous movie. Again. Not our top 10, because I got to be honest with you, there are movies that I quote, you know, uh, people quote stuff like Dumb and Dumber, and I quote like Step Brothers and, yep. and uh, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, did we just become best friends? Yep. Uh, you know, like I, I do all that. And 
And uh, to my wife's uh, never-ending eye-rolling uh, when I start quoting stepbrothers or something like that. Uh, okay, number eight. Now, Barry, here's one that kind of surprises me just because of the age of the movie. Not because it's not a great movie, because it's a great movie. It's often cited, uh, like, whenever they do a list of the best comedies of all time. I think it was from 1956. It's uh, Some Like It Hot with Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. And the go-home, have you ever seen that, by the way? I have. Okay, so the go-home line is Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis spend the majority of the movie in drag, okay, because they're trying to run away from uh, mobsters that, uh, you know, uh, correctly suspect that they they witnessed a murder and they're going to go to the cops. So Jack Lemmon in drag is being pursued by Joe E. Brown. Joe E. Brown was a legendary comic in the 20s and 30s. So here it's like, you know, uh, 25 plus years after his real high, you know, highlight of his career, he's a much older guy. And so he plays this uh, rich guy that's pursuing Jack Lemmon, doesn't realize that he's a guy. And so the final scene of the movie is they're in a boat, you know, and they're dry, you know, going away in the ocean. And, and Jack Lemmon finally says something effective, you know, like, I, I got to tell you something. And he says, what? And so he takes the wig off and he goes, I'm a man. And Joey Brown is like, looks right at the camera, kind of breaks that wall and says, well, you know, nobody's perfect. And that's the end of the movie. And it was like such an iconic line for the time. But I'm kind of surprised that, you know, all these years, you know, like, geez, 65 plus years later, it's still regarded as that iconic of an Align Barry. It, did you like uh, Some Like It Hot? Yeah, it's a good movie. It was, uh, I mean, it, it's an iconic classic movie, but it's Marilyn same time, Monroe. Absolutely. Marilyn Monroe. And it was, uh, and it, it was the two guys in drag. And that was a big deal at that time. And, uh, but I, I question, are people. You know, like I know, let's say The Godfather, which should be on this list. And and look, obviously, I'm going to say Lebowski, but I also think the, the Godfather transcends all of this. People are going to be doing Godfather. I was at a party once, and there was just a guy, and he was said to me, he was like, I, he, I, I, I was, he was like, bring your drink. We're moving to another table, and then he said, bring your drink, and then he said take the cannoli, leave the gun, you know, that whole deal. And yeah. I looked at him and for the next 20 minutes, we were trading Godfather quotes, but I question, are there groups of people that are trading some like it hot quotes currently? Out? Well, no, I and that's know. exactly my point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are people out there that loves like uh, the Marx brothers and, and stuff, you know, and that doesn't mean that people in everyday life are exchanging exactly. Mark, uh, quotes as great as he was, you know, he and, was. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I still love the three stooges. I, I introduced my daughter to the three stooges when she was about 10 years old. Sure. And, you know, and, and I, you know, I remember <laughs> at, exactly. And at my wedding to Kim, I'm proud to say uh, that during the reception, I was asked to do the curly shuffle and uh, I got down on the floor in my, in my uh, tux and I nice. did the, uh, the spinning movie on and, uh, you know, did the, uh, the circle spin and, uh, the Curly Shuffle. Anyway, uh, getting on here. Number seven. Oh, a great film, Barry. Midnight Cowboy. And we had Ratso Rizzo with the, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Everybody's like talking about me. Thank you. Can't believe a word they're saying. Yeah, it is. Uh, Midnight Please Cowboy, first off, is a, that was the best rendition <laughs> of that song you've ever heard. You know you want to say that. Uh, it's a, That is an excellent movie. And I, I watched this, I guess, about a year ago. It was on one of the streaming channels. and. I just put it in, and uh, John Voight does a great job. Dustin Hoffman kind of steals the cake with this one because it's just incredible. But this is a quotable movie. It, it, the subject matter is not always the easiest to digest, 
from that standpoint, but it is it is a quotable movie. And I, I think a lot of it is the Dustin Hoffman quotes because his character is such a character, right? Well, and you know, what's really amazing is he was like literally maybe a year or two away or, or out of playing Benjamin in The Graduate, you know? Uh, and the fact that he right. was able to morph himself into basically this street urchin, you know, in New York City and and all the mannerisms and all the, uh, you know, the disabilities that the character had, uh, you know, from just being uh, abused from his life on the street. And the fact that, uh, I mean, shows Dustin Hoffman, who uh, I'm going to say apparently is uh, not the world's greatest human being uh, based on some stuff that has come out within the last few years. Uh, but you know, tremendous actor. Oh my God. The guy's body of work is just amazing. So, uh, anyway, uh, moving on number six, Barry, we still have not got to any Lebowski, by the way, (sighs) number six from Jurassic park. Hold on to your butts. Samuel L. Jackson, as they get ready to restart the old, uh, power grid there in Jurassic park, were you a fan first of all, of the original Jurassic park? Absolutely. And I've discussed this. I remember where I saw the movie on opening night. And I will say if if I was and maybe this is something we should talk about at some point, maybe our top five most impactful movie scenes. And I, I think I know what they are, all five in my head. But when the dinosaurs first came out on screen, which I believe was the birth of CGI, so we had never seen anything ever like it. I just sat there and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was mesmerizing. Now, With now, that, are, are, are you ta- I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Are you talking about when they first showed the T-Rex or when they're out in the field? When they're out in the field. Okay. When out, yeah, because that's a peaceful. I mean, the T-Rex was really exciting. But when they're out in the fields, which is where they make their first, and it's kind of a peaceful scene. It's a beautiful scene, actually, as well. Uh, I just remember going, wow, just yeah. blown away. And uh, it was great because Sam Neill – uh, with the uh, Laura Dern, they noticed that the way the dinosaurs were sort of migrating, uh, with each other was very similar to birds and the way that birds fly together. And, you, you know, they, they could see the way that evolution had played a part, uh, in the way that birds currently migrate as the way that the way that the dinosaurs uh, were migrating, uh, in this film, but I know Jurassic park is just a, a great movie, uh, you know, uh, two and three, not so good. The, uh, Jurassic world movies. I really enjoyed those a lot. The first one was was probably the best one of oh, the yeah. Jurassic World. But uh, yeah, good series. Spielberg is a brilliant filmmaker. Uh, no question about that. Oh, very good news at number five. We've got a Lebowski quote. Barry, what would be your go-to quote from Lebowski? Oh, shit. Uh, There's only one Lebowski quote on this list. I will spoil that for you. So I want to know which one is it that they've got on this list. I'm going to, as simple as it is, and it's only three words, for me, it'll always be over the line. Over the line! I can get you a toe. I can get you a toe. Is that what they put? I'm just sitting here having a cup of coffee. No, that is not what they picked. I will will set the scene for you, Barry, and you tell me what the quote is, okay? All right. I like it. It's in the bowling alley. Okay. And they've just met the Jesus. Okay, so uh, is it the uh, I'll shove it up your ass and pull the trigger till it goes click? Nope. Okay, is it uh, they've met the oh, uh, he's a pederast? Nope. No. Uh, you brought a dog bowling? It's not a dog, it's a <laughs> show dog, uh, which is actually, no, that's I, not it. I know they like haven't you said, there's so yet. many funny. 
You know, there's uh, so much. Uh, so they had just met Jesus. Uh, oh, that's like your opinion, man. Exactly. No, that's just <laughs> like you your opinion, man. At number yeah. five from Barry's all time favorite film, perhaps the big Lebowski. And, and certainly if you're doing any sort of list of the most quotable movies in Toto, uh, you know, because Lebowski has so many quotable lines, uh, that, uh, you, they just continually throw out there. Uh, so anyway, uh, number four, Barry, we're going to Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy. Well, that escalated quickly. Remember the famous brawl between Ron and Veronica was at Corningstone, uh, and the, uh, in this, the middle of the, uh, the TV station where they're brawling, they're using TV antennas and, and all that kind of stuff that, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. the, the original Anchorman was absolutely hilarious. And I'll say this. I thought the original Anchorman, as much as I love both films aged much better than, um, uh, what do you call, uh, uh, Talladega nights, Talladega nights at this point seems a little bit, I love it, but it seems a little on the dated side to me. So wh- which, uh, which of the two were your favorites Talladega nights or Anchorman? Oh, Anchorman was Talladega Nights. There were parts of it that I liked. The Ricky Bobby. Uh, I liked Ricky Bobby. Did you ever go to Mission Barbecue? They have Ricky Bobby chicken. Which is, uh, <laughs> yeah. Don't you is. put it's, that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. It's shake and bake. There was parts of Talladega Nights that I liked a lot, but overall, I would have to say. You know what? Uh, you know what? Maybe yeah. the best part of Tal- uh, Talladega Nights is you can go out there on YouTube and, and, th- and the outtakes from Talladega Nights. With uh, you know, with um, John C. Riley and uh, Will Ferrell, where they're doing like the the fake commercials, you know, like the there are there are roams of of wild dogs uh, running to your neighborhood, and that's why you need to have this product or something. And they're they're reading the lines, and they both keep busting each other up laughing, and it's very funny stuff. So, but Anchorman, yeah, no, that's great. Uh, you know, with his dog, and and I'm in a I'm in a case or a glass full of motion. Yeah, that's good stuff. Number three, Barry. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Shockingly, I will tell you, Dumb and Dumber is not listed here. I, I'm kind of surprised about that. I'm so, not, because th- this this list kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> we can clearly say, Jeff, but this Barry list Rose is, uh... has a distinct <laughs> well, Wait till we get to number two, Barry. That's all. Ugh. Number three, though, is all righty then. Yeah. Jim Carrey. Not a fan of Ace Ventura? I, I am. I mean, it, it's been a long time. And uh, this was the revelation of Jim Carrey, even though he had been around for probably a decade before this with various TV shows and in uh, movies and stuff. But Ace Ventura put him on the map. And I want to say this was, if not the biggest movie of the year, which I think would have been 90, 93, maybe 94, somewhere right around there. If it wasn't the biggest movie of the year, it was probably right up there but everybody saw this movie he was fantastic in this role there are a lot of quotes Alrighty then absolutely became you know it, probably the most famous because everybody was walking around going Alrighty then but at the same time yeah i don't know it's a weird list to me i gotta be so, honest you know which one I, i'm kind of surprised and you're right this is a was a very popular quote i'm really surprised that uh the mask which i thought was sure. a much better performance by Jim Carrey because, you know, he was had to be like this rubber faced uh, kind of guy. But, you know, the way that in that movie, when he's wearing the mask and he sees Cameron Diaz and the line where he goes smoking. Yes. Uh, holy crap. How many places did you see that line or, you know, like DJs on radio stations using that line and and memes and stuff like that? That kind of surprised me. 
I think my Jim Carrey, my favorite Jim Carrey movie might be Liar Liar. I really like that. Whereas, uh, you know, his son inadvertently puts sort of like a spell on him and he can't tell a lie for 24 hours. And it's a great scene where he's in the courtroom. He's a lawyer and he can't lie. <laughs> so uh, having worked in a courtroom, I'll just say that scene was rather. All right. <laughs> uh, Barry, I know that you're a huge fan of Star Wars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so number two. I got to be honest with you. This one absolutely stuns me that this quote is on there because I look, I like star Wars. I like the first three star Wars movies. They were good. They didn't change my whole fucking life. Like the way that some people feel like they did. The quote is, I have a bad feeling about this. I don't even know who said the quote. I don't know if it was Mark Hamill or Harrison Ford or whatever, but I don't know when you're talking about the most quotable lines in a movie. That's, Top 50 or a hundred. This is not number two of all time, Barry. I, yeah, I, uh, I don't, I don't did even you like know. star Wars. Can I get that out of you? The first one I did. I, I never followed it's when star Wars came out and geez, what was that? 75, 76, 77, I think 77. Like that, yeah. And, uh, I remember again, remember the movie theater where I saw it. Remember the fact that I did not eat lunch that day and I had popcorn and I had a splitting headache which I learned I actually had a corn allergy that day, but I still eat popcorn and I eat so corn. You always manage to work food into this. Uh, I, 100%. I can always equate it back somehow to some sort of food. But I really did like the first Star Wars. That was like the biggest film, right, at the time ever. And it was spectacular and it was great. I'm, I'm just not a uh, – I, I don't get into the whole star. I, I actually like Star Trek. And as Linda said to me the other day, she goes, you know what I really like about you? One thing I really like about you. And of course, I, I said, no, nah, I don't really care. Uh, but no, I said, what is it? And she said uh, that you're not really into uh, Star Wars and, and the superhero movies and all that. And I said, well, I'll be honest, though. I really like the original Star Trek a lot. And she'll say, and then she, well, then she lost a lot of points. Star Trek, what's the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars? And I was like, there are people, there are countries that would hang you up for that. Uh, that's <laughs> out there, you know? Well, but, I uh, have yeah. <clears throat> I have mentioned, I'm going to go with Linda on this, I hate to say. I uh, I enjoy, I will say, I enjoyed the Star Trek movies. Uh, I like the Wrath of Khan! I like that. Uh, you know, I like the, uh, the reboot movies with Chris Pine. Uh, I thought those were entertaining. I did not grasp the whole uh, TV series like when it was on. And, you know, I can remember, geez, 10 and 15 years after it was over and they would, you know, start replaying it uh, in, on the weekends on the local uh, UHF channel. And people were just like, oh, my God, Star Trek. It's uh, episode four of season, you know, whatever. And I'm like, huh? You know, and the trouble with Tribbles, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I remember that was the title of one of the episodes. And but I mean, good Lord, the iconic nature of that show to some people. And again, you know, we, we talked recently, we were talking about movies, how everything's subjective. And you know what, if somebody loves star Trek and it changed their life, oh, that's absolutely. cool. That's cool. I, you know, I mean, that's, that's the way you feel about it. I get it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I have arguments. Uh, I have this really good friend of mine who uh, is completely into the whole Harry Potter series. Okay. And uh, she's like uh, close to 50 years old, loves Harry Potter. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and we're always like, well, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings is so much better than Harry Potter. Oh, no, that's impossible. Harry Potter is. A, and it's all subjective. And Star Trek versus Star Wars, very subjective. Uh, I eh, twist my arm. I'd probably say I like 
Star Wars a little better, like the first three movies. But, you know, the whole Rogue One and the Mandalorian or whatever that's on Disney, I have not gone out of my way to see any of that stuff. Don't know about it. You know, don't want to know more about the history of Ewoks and uh, how they came to be and what their family members' names are. Not a big deal. Let's get back to happier things uh, for the list because number one is going to make Barry Rose a happy man. No, it's not for Big Lebowski, Barry. All right. It is from one of your favorite movies of all time. Fletch. So if, if this movie, or I mean, if this this quote from this movie redeems your, uh, itself, then the quote from uh, Dumb and Dumber, you, and now you've gone and totally redeemed yourself, even though that probably should have been on the list, by the way. Number one, Barry, is from the Terminator, oh. the original Terminator. What's the line? Sure. I'll be back. Of course. And that is number one. Barry Rose has the list in some way been redeemed. No, the list is not it, but it's interesting. Like if I was going to choose the Terminator, so this isn't the most quotable films because how many lines were quotable in the Terminator? I mean, that was definitely the one I'll be back because Arnold made a career out of that. This was quotes most used in daily life. I'll be back. Uh, You know what? And and let me throw in another Arnold movie. Kindergarten cop. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor. It's a tumor. It's not a tumor. What does your daddy do? Uh, you know, whatever that that line too. So that's a, that's a that's a great movie that they should have used in there. Uh, that's you know. fun. Yeah, yeah. Boys have penises and girls have vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> Arnold, you were so great, Arnold. What happened? Oh. All right, Barry's. We're doing the old rounding turn, going for home. Another episode in the banks. Now, Barry, that we are done with this episode, I can tell you three episodes away. Episode two six zero. When we get to that, a special all star edition of Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry, because we are not going to just have Vince fucking McMahon has promised me that he's going to be calling in the show to do a live appearance. He's going to be discussing the scandals. He is going to break kayfabe. He's going to tell the goddamn truth about what really happened on that plane. Uh, Maybe not. I don't know. We're going to try to get Vince. I'm not going to promise anything, but we hope you'll be along for the, uh, the rest of the episodes before we get to that five-year anniversary. Barry Rose, are you looking forward to it? You know, when we started this, Jeff, uh, and, and I think I came around. What a long, strange trip it's been. It has been, and we have gone through uh, a lot. And Lou's been with us now. What, Lou, three, three and a half years? I can't remember the name of the guy that used to be our producer. No, I don't know. But Lou's been with us for so long as well. And obviously, you and I have been friends for decades at this point. But hard to believe it's almost five years. Uh, That was a quick five years, I guess. Yeah. I was married. Yeah, I was married the at the time. The halcyon days, if you will. No kids in college when we started. No Everything was good. to pay for. Nothing. I, was, I wasn't I was in debt like I currently am. So, yeah. The good you old days. You were still working for Open Table. I, oh, man. That's going back, isn't it? Yes, and I was. I was a mere piddling courthouse employee for the clerk of courts of Broward County, Florida. Oh, wow, Barry. That was a, that was a long, long fucking time ago. So anyway, on behalf of my co-host, Barry Rose, and our producer, in fact, sweet Louis Kippelman, uh, scam likely, haven't called him that lately, uh, but he is the original San Francisco treat, if you will. Uh, I will say that breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and or Barry is a production. In fact, of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, sweet man, let's bring this ship into port.